Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. For this week's bonus episode, I have a pretty incredible guest that I think a lot of you are going to dislike a whole lot for about half of the episode, and then you're going to like him a whole lot for the second half. My guest today's name is Andrew Collins. He was a former Benton Harbor Police Department here in Benton Harbor, Michigan, just about 20 minutes from where I live right now. As a matter of fact, a lot of the people he's talking about in this interview, I know them personally. Andrew started off his career in the police force as a 21-year-old kid who had the best intentions in mind. But as often happens in the police department, different incentives and ego and things got in the way. Andrew began bending the rules, and it led to a pretty incredible and amazing story. I don't want to give it away. Andrew's going to tell it all right here in this interview right after a break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so now I was going to say I don't know if you remember this, but you, I'm, I'm almost certain you don't. But we actually met very briefly. Uh, I don't know. Gosh, man, it's been five or six years ago at the Blue Roof Church in St. Joe, Michigan. Yeah, I remember uh, Jamal and I coming there to speak, but there's been a plethora of human beings uh, that I've gotten <laughs> through this. Yeah, it's been great, but I do not do well with names and faces. So, yeah, I, I ran up a, amongst all the other people afterwards after you guys had spoke and was trying to get an interview with you. But you were, you guys were just getting ready to put your book out, and all that stuff was going on right then. But uh, man, ever since then, uh, you know, I, I heard you guys. There was a friend of mine told me that you guys were coming to speak, that you and Jamil were going to be there, and thought I should come. And I, man, it was the the story was incredible. I was enthralled with it then. I'm I'm still enthralled with, and actually, an, um, a guy that uh, one of the guys that's on our on our show, Zach Weaver, suggested I reached out to you, and I re- I remembered that speech. So, a couple things I want to do. Number one, I just want the audience to hear your story because it's incredible. Um, and yeah. then and then I'd like to talk about where it's really relevant to us. And my podcast primarily focuses on wrongful convictions, and we see we we see 
bad cops doing bad things and even good cops doing bad things in a lot of these. And so you have like the greatest insider perspective of, of what, what leads a cop that started off with the best intentions to, to go astray. But before we get to that, why don't you tell everybody this, this incredible story that you have? Yeah. So, I mean, my story in police work starts in 2003. Uh, I got out of high school in 2000, went to the police academy. I uh, got an associate's degree in criminal justice and then uh, put out applications to, uh, I think, 80 or 90 different departments in Michigan. Uh, back in 2003, there was a hiring freeze. Uh, state police wasn't hiring at the time. I think there was a lot of budget issues. Uh, so we were told in the academy, like, it might be a while before you get hired anywhere. So I put out a bunch of applications. Uh, there's a website where you can get on and see every every uh, municipality in the state. I just started. I, I wanted uh, Cadillac, Traverse City, Ludington, and other than that, I didn't care. So I just started at alphabetically at A, and I just started throwing out applications and resumes to, to, to everyone. And one of those uh, applications and resumes came to Ben Harbor. Uh, had never heard of Ben Harbor, Michigan before. Uh, didn't really know uh, the dynamic uh, with the city. Uh, I just knew that they called me about a month before I graduated and said, uh, you know, come on down for a, um, for a test. So did the test, did the interview, got the second interview, got hired uh, about what, two weeks, three weeks after the academy was over. So I was just thrilled to have a job. Mm-hmm. And uh, first day on the job, um, well, actually backing up a little bit, I had been hired, but I hadn't started yet. And in June of 2003, um, I mean, you're from the area, you might remember there was a civil unrest. Uh, I mean, that's what the news called it, but it was all out riots. Right. Yeah. Definitely remember that. I think a week or so. Yeah. So a police officer had been chasing a motorcyclist. It ended in the motorcyclist dying. And that kind of sparked off just years worth of animosity between a predominantly black community and a predominantly white police force. So that's where I stepped into the story with Benton Harbor, uh, was a 21 year old white kid from the backwoods of Northern Michigan, uh, with no real cultural diversity training, no, no real communication, even with somebody, uh, from a different culture, a different race or different ethnicity. So I just, I just came in wanting to change the world, wanted to be a really good cop. And, uh, at first I, I think I was doing really well. So. I mean, I got into police work because I grew up in a house of domestic violence, and I saw my mom uh, be abused quite a bit physically and emotionally, and my dad had abused us emotionally more than physically, and, you know, this this guy was just a monster in my life and kind of terrified me as a young man, and one night, their fight got a little out of control, and the cops were called, and when the police officer showed up, he just brought peace to my house, and... I don't know, I was probably five or six, somewhere down there. And I just remember thinking from that point on, like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Uh, I want to bring peace to people's... I don't think I had the words for it then, but that's really what I wanted. I wanted to bring peace to people's lives. The way that he did that for us. So never doubted that I was going to be a cop. So when I started off uh, at Ben Harbor Police Department, I was just thrilled that this dream was being actualized and... You know, went through all the training and everything, and then about a year and a half into uh, my time at the department, I I started kind of finding my niche with drug dealers. I, I didn't like drug dealers. I didn't like the drug trade. I watched as dealers kind of grew 
financially and in stature because they were selling to their moms and dads. And, you know, watching that whole dynamic really ticked me off. And and really something just as simple as I didn't like the fact that drug dealers didn't have to pay taxes. Uh, like I had to, I had to pay taxes on the money I made and I thought it was unfair that they got around that system. So I started chasing after drug dealers, like I said, about a year and a half into, into my stay. And we were a poor department in Benton Harbor. So, I mean, we didn't have, yeah, I think I started, uh, when I started, I was driving a 1990s something, um, Chevy Caprice, uh, which had been, you know, the newest technology at that time was Chevy Impala's little six cylinders and I was driving this Corvette engine uh Caprice with a bunch of body damage and I love that car but <laughs> I, uh we were a very poor department so I started bringing in through civil forfeiture laws um drug money you know so uh, for those who aren't familiar I think the laws have changed but back then if I could tie your crime if it was a drug crime if I could tie your money or your property to the sales of, of drugs or the delivery even of drugs. We had a guy one time who, um, he would deliver crack cocaine to prostitutes, uh, in exchange for services. So he wasn't a drug dealer, uh, but we got him to admit that that's, uh, that he used his truck frequently to do that. And we ended up civilly forfeiting his truck. So I, I just, I, I became really good at finding drug dealers and, uh, I was a really aggressive police officer. Uh, so, you know, kind of my, my career path shifted from just normal police work into narcotics. So somewhere around 2005, I was promoted to narcotics. Uh, and when I say I was promoted, uh, there was no narcotics unit. It was literally me. Uh, I, I had an undercover vehicle. I worked from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and I would just ride up and down the streets looking for drug dealers. And through that, I, formed some confidential informants and then I ended up with a partner and uh, yeah, we just went from there. So what started as really wanting to change the world, really wanting to help bring peace to people's lives became more and more about building my own ego. Um, I really liked the attention from people. I loved that my chief would notice when I did things. I loved being able to say like, Hey, I made 38 grand last year. Yeah, I seized $50,000. Like, I'm paying for myself to work here. Uh, so what started off as all about others' focus very quickly became all about me and, and growing my name and my fame. And, um, yeah, just looking back on it now, just how, how quick I fell down that hole. Um, yeah, so what started off as kind of an innocent kid just wanting to help change the world turned into how can, how can I make the most for myself? And when I was 21 years old, I, I never would have thought that I would have ended up doing the things that I did when I was uh, just four and a half years later at 25 years old. So even when I started narcotics, I had rules for myself. I said, you know, I'd, we used to call it um, bending the law or articulation, a creative articulation. You know, uh, the older officers that I'd lament to him and say, man, I, I had this foot chase and I caught this guy and later I found some dope, but I didn't see him throw it. These older officers would groom me and say, hey, like, if you don't say you saw him throw it, it's going to be really difficult to get fingerprints off that bag. So if you know it was his, then why don't you just say you saw him throw it? And I always try to be careful when sharing this message as well, that 
that doesn't excuse what I did. It's not their fault that I chose to do uh, the things that I did. I could have listened to their advice and said, no, I don't think I'll do it that way. Uh, I'll stand me up and up. But I started doing that. I started uh, creatively articulating, which now this far removed from that time in my life, I just say that's lies. That's there's no such thing as creative articulation. I was lying on police reports mm-hmm. to make sure that I got um, the effects that I needed. So I uh, started with that, but I also had these rules: like I'll never steal money from people, I'll never steal uh, money from the city because the city would trust me with money to to try to buy drugs with confidential informants. So I had this um, this account that I had access to of cash. And I uh, said, so I'll never steal from those two places and I'll never plant drugs. Like those are, those are the rules for my life. And uh, by the end of my career, uh, I was stealing money from drug dealers, stealing money from the city of Benton Harbor and, you know, planting drugs to make sure that I could get the search warrants that I wanted. And I just completely lost control of my integrity and of my ethics. So that led to February, 2008, getting caught with crack and heroin and marijuana in my office and, uh, the end of my career. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So prior to that, in was it 2006, you had yeah. you had the your your dealings with Jamil McKee. Yeah. Which is which is what really has made. You know, the, the the connection between the two of you is what really brought the story kind of to everyone's everyone's eyes. Can you can you walk us through that story? Yeah, so that was 2006. So, again, I just got started in narcotics and I was starting to do these, these shady things uh, that I was slowly becoming perfectly fine in doing. And one of those one of those incidents was with Jamel. So I caught a guy uh, with some crack cocaine earlier in that day. Uh, and he made a deal with me that he would order up an ounce of crack from his dealer uh, if I let him go. And at that point, an ounce of crack to me was like, it was like the next notch in my belt, you know, like, uh, oh man, I've never had that much crack in one instance before. So he made the call. He told me that he was getting it from a guy named Ox. Um, I didn't know who Ox was, but I knew that the FBI was interested in him. I'd heard his name be thrown around before, so I thought, man, this could really be good for my career. And the confidential informant, or the guy who I had busted earlier that day, he told me, hey, they'll be driving a Durango. This is where it's going to be. This is where we set it up. Uh, They're going to bring it to that location, or he's going to bring it to that location. So we waited on the phone call. Finally, the guy called. 
and says, hey, we're here. So I take off uh, with some backup, and we show up in the Durango sitting there, uh, just like we were told. And there's a guy in the passenger seat, but he uh, he wasn't ox. Like, he had some uh, physical disabilities in his legs that I knew that I knew that ox wasn't disabled. So I knew this wasn't the guy, uh, even though he was in the vehicle. And then somebody came out of the store, uh, the little convenience store, and started walking towards the vehicle. And I thought, well, that's my guy. Uh, so I walked up to him, and for the rest of that day, I just operated as if that was Ox. I got my guy. I said, hey, man, where's my dope? And you know, he said, I don't know what you're talking about. So I told him, hey, I know that there's some dope in the car. Where is it? You know, Don't make this hard on me. He said, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. So I patted him down. He didn't have anything on him. Um, he got really angry with me. You know, it was getting pretty loud. So I put him in handcuffs and put him in the back of a squad car and then searched the vehicle and found an ounce of crack cocaine in the uh, center council. And, uh, so when I wrote that report, I ended up locking the guy up. And, uh, when I wrote the report, I said that when I pulled up, I saw the driver lean over towards the center council and make a furtive gesture. Um, so that's a, a police officer's way of saying, I didn't see him put it in there, but all the evidence points to him putting it in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, another tactic that I had been taught. And it's amazing now that you know, I listen to some of the reports that come out and you see that same language. Um, officers in all different parts of the country using the same exact language. He made a furtive gesture towards his waistband, so I shot him. Or, you know, things like that where it's like, how did, how are we all on the same page yet? You know, we never met each other. So that's one of those system things that kind of still surprises me to think about of, um, of how those things can happen all over the world. So, so anyway, so, so I lied. I lied in the report. I said that I saw the driver, uh, the guy who came out of the store. I put him in the driver's seat and said he was the driver and I saw him lean in. Um, and I put him in close proximity to that crack cocaine. So two days later, I got a call from the FBI saying, Hey, you didn't get Ox. You got Zuki. Uh, that's, that's Ox's cousin, uh, Jamel McGee. So now I have an issue because I got the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. I was still pretty convinced that this guy was, was there and that he was in that vehicle. He even admitted that he caught a ride to the store in that vehicle, but he's, he's not the guy, but it doesn't matter at this point. Cause my report says, regardless of what the guy's name is, I said, I saw him lean towards the center council. So later, you know, hear from Jamel that, you know, he, he's sitting there in jail going, well, once they figure out I'm not Ox, this guy locked me up under my cousin's name. Once they figure that out, I'll be free to go. No worries. And then two days later, he gets a supplemental report that I filed saying, hey, I know I said Ox, I meant Zuki. There's a lot of street names out there. I was confused. So another lie on top of the first lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Jamel fought it all the way to, to federal court uh, because he knew he was innocent. And I went and lied in front of a judge, in front of a prosecutor, in front of a jury. And, you know, in less than one day is all the trial took. Uh, Jamal was found guilty and was later sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. And uh, that was his first ever drug offense. Uh, I mean, he tell you, he's, he's been in trouble as a, a youth and as a young man, but had never messed around with drugs. His uh, mom and dad had both had bouts of addiction and he just didn't, he didn't like the stuff. So he knew his family members were involved in it, but so here he is found guilty of something that he's never, he's never done and he's never liked. And, uh, so yeah, so then he went away for a 10 year 
Now, as it turned out, was he not even the driver of the car? No. No, he just, uh, he had caught a ride, and I still don't know all the details, but from the best that I can piece it together is um, when the two were in the store, um, the cousin uh, somehow heard that we were out there, somebody came in or something, I don't know, and just kind of didn't come out. Uh, so was there, uh, and and I've heard Jamel say like I, I knew what they were doing, I knew what they were up to. I just needed to ride to the store. Um, that's none of my business. You know, they can do what they need to do. I just need to get to the store because he was uh, he was going to be able to spend some time with his son that day, and uh, that didn't end up happening. So he wanted to get to the store and get some some snacks for himself and some milk for his boy, and yeah. So when he came out, that's what he had. He had some gummy bears and. Uh, some milk. And so you, you fabricated this report and you get him, he gets locked up for 10 years. And then, and then that wasn't the end of your, of your digression, I guess, as a, as a cop. So, so what happened between there and, to, and in 2008, I remember you saying in, in, in your presentation that you had drugs and money, all this stuff in your office. Had, had you began using or were you just seizing all that stuff for, for monetary gain? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Neither. Um, I had thought about selling what I would get. So, uh, what it was is I was, I was, uh, I was getting search warrants based on controlled buys. So, um, a police officer has a control or a confidential informant and that confidential informant says, Hey, this house over here at 123 Apple has drugs in it. And then the officer says, okay, you know, let's meet up. I'm going to pass you down. I'm going to make sure you don't have anything on you. And then I'm going to give you marked buy money. Uh, we would take photocopies of it. So we had the serial numbers, give them the money. Then I could say to a judge in a search warrant, I searched the person, they had no money on them. They had no drugs on them. And I watched them. I never lost contact with them from the time I met with them until they entered one, two, three Apple street. Mm-hmm. They get, you know, they, they come back out. I never lose eye contact with them again. I, I catch, I catch back up with them. I search them again. They no longer have the money on them. They have drugs on them. And then they tell me, yep, so-and-so's inside, and they have the they, they have more drugs. And that's how I get my search warrant. Well, I, was, I wasn't patient enough to do it the right way. So somebody would call and say, so-and-so has drugs. And I'd say, will you go buy some for me? And he said, no, for whatever reason. That's my cousin. I don't really want to be involved like that. Like, it scares me to do stuff like that. But you can trust. And there was a lot of these confidential informants I could trust because I had used them so many times that I would just circumvent the system, and I would say that I did all those things, that I did the controlled buy, uh, and then we would get a search warrant, we would go, you know, do do an entry on the house, and we would get the drugs, and the quote-unquote bad guy would go to jail. But unfortunately, every once in a while, between the time that you wrote the search warrant, got it signed, and then went back to the house to, um, to do the search warrant, uh, the person may have sold out, or they flushed it when you got there, or I can remember one time, I got into a fight with... Um, his baby mama and he left. So there was no drugs left there. And now I'm in an issue because I said I bought drugs. Uh-huh. So I said, I bought a dime piece of uh, crack cocaine. Well, where'd that dime piece go? I, I should at least have enough that I bought. So I would keep it off to the side in case that would happen. Then that way I could uh, shave a little bit off of what I had, send it down to the lab to be tested. And then, the only way you can charge somebody with that is if your confidential informant testifies against them because it was controlled by. So you'd never do that, or we would never do that at least. We would 
say to the prosecutor, hey, we, we don't want to burn our CI. Uh, we don't want to burn our informant. So we're just going to let that one go. And the drugs would be destroyed and the case would be closed and you'd start a new investigation. So I saw it back then as no harm, no foul. I'm using these drugs to get bigger and better search warrants and to do it faster. I know we were, like I said, I had a partner and we were really impressed with ourselves that there was a, you know, 10 or 15 person narcotics team at the Berrien County Sheriff's Department that we were doing two, three search warrants a week, getting substantial drugs and money. And they were, you know, getting one or two a week that had barely anything in it. So we, we were so impressed with ourselves. And it was because we were more efficient because we were cheating. And if you know anything about law, uh, anything that's illegal in the course of getting the search warrant makes the whole thing illegal. So I mean, we caught a guy with 14 ounces of crack cocaine. And if there's anything wrong in the leading up to that search warrant, then you just throw it out. It doesn't matter if the guy was really selling it or not. The, the whole fruit from the poisonous tree thing? Fruit from the poisonous tree, exactly. So so that's that was our bread and butter. And uh, yeah, so got caught with all those drugs in my office. Uh, and that's what the drugs were for. Um, never used, never sold. But that's obviously what it looked like. I actually would have been better off. If I would have said, if I would have come back the next day, I got caught on a Tuesday. If I would have went back on a Wednesday and said, hey, I have a severe drug problem. I've been using all these drugs. I probably could still be a police officer today because the union is so strong. I probably would have been offered rehab. Right. Um, the, the, the community would have been told, yeah, hey, Officer Collins got some issues, but we're helping him through it. But instead, I just continued <laughs> to lie. I, I just said, hey, I'm... I'm kind of a rambunctious officer, and I like to get out there and get stuff done. So, uh, you know, I found those drugs in an alley, and I threw them, threw them in my office and just forgot it and just continued to lie. And, uh, you know, my little house of cards crumbled. So so what what did the house of cards crumble? First of all, how did, how did they get tipped off to the fact that you had them in your office, or was that just a fluke that someone found them? <laughs> yeah. So I had uh, my partner. We, he and I had had an argument. Uh, we, we've been going back and forth about not doing this anymore. Um, we both would, in different times, have these epiphanies that we didn't want, that we, that we didn't want to live like that anymore. And, uh, you know, so one time we talked about, we, I grew up in the church and was starting to have a lot of guilt about stealing. And I remember one time in our office just having a conversation with him. I said, man, I grew up in the church and you, uh, you know, are in the church pretty regularly. And, I get that it's drug money, but it's still stealing. Like, what do we do with that? And he's like, you know what? I've been feeling the same way. Like, let's, let's be done. I said, yeah, let's stop. And it was almost like this, this epiphany that we don't have to steal from people. We can be good cops again. And, uh, so later that night, the very same day that we had this conversation, later that night, we do a search warrant. I go to the back bedroom where I was told everything would be two ounces of crack, a handgun, digital scale. And I said, okay, where's the money? flip a mattress over and there's like six or seven rubber banded bindles of money. And I knew from experience that meant that each of those was a thousand dollars. So I grabbed a bindle and put it in my pocket and thought, ah, just one more time. Like, when am I ever going to see this much again? So then I sent that, the rest of the money and the evidence out to him. There was a whole team in there searching, but uh, he sat at the table in, in the kitchen and kind of documented everything that we took out of the house. 
So we get done with it, and he and I leave, and I pulled the 1,000 out, and I counted out 500 and handed it to him because we always did things 50-50. And he said, what's this? And I said, oh, it's your half. And he said, oh, I don't need that. I, I took one, too, meaning he took one of the bindles. Mm-hmm. And uh, just earlier that day, we said we were done with it, and yet by the end of the day, we sold $2,000 uh, from a drug house. So we were just so deep in that I don't, I don't think there was any way to, to pull back out. So anyways, he and I had an argument. Uh, a month before I got caught. We had caught a guy with some heroin, and he had a few hundred dollars on him. It wasn't much. And my partner wanted to steal all of it. And I said, no, we can't do that. We said, we're not going to do this anymore. So we get into this argument about it. Uh, and then I found out later uh, that, that he had went to um, the department heads and said, I think Collins is up to some shady stuff, thinking that they would pull me out of narcotics and that he would kind of have the run of the show. And, uh, so, so there started to be some suspicion. Uh, and then one of my very good friends, the day that I got caught, uh, we did a search warrant on a house and, uh, my buddy had been on duty at that house the day before he had responded to a domestic violence complaint, uh, the very apartment that I wrote the search warrant for. And in that search warrant, I said that I was there or that I sent somebody in to buy drugs. And the time that I said that I sent somebody in there, uh, he was there taking this complaint. He was there for a long time dealing with this couple. So he went to the captain the day that I got caught. It was a very early morning search warrant. After we were done, he went up there and he said, hey, there's there's something wrong with the search warrant. Like, I, I was there yesterday during this time. That's not what happened. So that kind of, that, that sparked everything. Uh, I got called up to the, uh, the captain's office and said, hey, we've been getting a lot of complaints about you. Uh, we're going to take you out of narcotics. And I remember for a moment, like, feeling this burden lifted because I had been talking to my wife. Like, I just want to go back to the road. I just want to do normal police work again. Um, it's weird because nobody put that pressure on me to to get drugs every day or every week. or It's almost like a drug addict who just needs a bigger high. Um, they're always chasing that high, and that's exactly what I was doing is, we catch a guy with a ton of dope and that was great for the day. And it made me feel really good about what I was doing. But then, you know, two days later, I was like, I need to get some more to make sure that you know, I keep this position and uh, I keep this cloud up or whatever it was. So there was a piece of me that was kind of like, okay, good. They're, I couldn't stop. So they're going to take me out of narcotics. So good deal. I'll get back to be a good cop. And, and then the captain said, and also we're going to search your, uh, your car. Cause I had a take home car. He said, we're going to search your car and we're going to search your office. And I knew that there was a Crown Royal bag with a half ounce of crack, an ounce of weed, and some heroin in it. I was like, man, that's, you know, but I didn't say anything. I said, okay, you search whatever you want. I mean, at that mm-hmm. point, I was, I was very bold and um, had been lying for so long that I felt like I'd be fine. And so the captain came down and searched the office and found a fireproof safe underneath my desk. And, asked whose it was and I said, ah, you know, we just moved into this office a couple months ago. It was in here. I just threw it under my desk and forgot about it. So he handed me the safe uh, in my pocket. I've got the key to the safe. And then uh, he walks out in front of me and says, well, let's go to the fire department. We'll have, we'll have them open it. So he walks out, my partner walks out and they leave me to lock up shop. And I was like, oh, this is my chance. Yeah, I can pull this Crown Royal bag out of here and at that point, all I'm thinking is I need to save my career. I, 
wasn't even dawning on me that I might end up in prison over this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I shut the door. I, I locked the door. And on that same key ring is my lock for my, my lock box. So I fell back a little bit. Uh, let them get a few paces in front of me. And, you know, captains in front, partners in, you know, behind him, and then me in the rear. And so I opened up the case with him walking in front of me. If he'd have just If he'd have turned around, he'd have saw me in the case. And I pulled the Crown, Crown Royal bag out and shut the case and dipped into the bathroom real quick and threw the Crown Royal bag <laughs> right on top of the trash. Didn't <laughs> try to bury it. I could have flushed it. I could have ran off the side door and jumped in my car and took off. Uh, just threw it right on top of the trash. So anybody who come in, there's just a Crown Royal bag sitting on top of, of all the trash. So. Came out of the bathroom, hustled up, tried to get behind him. And right about the time that the door shut into the bathroom, Captain turns around and goes, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He said, you're acting, you're starting to act like a criminal. I said, whatever, man. He takes me up to his office. He said, you know, give me your keys. So I hand him my keys and he verifies that I have a key on the ring that opens the safe. And he opens it up and it's empty. And he said, okay, at this point I would, I'd advise you to not say another word. Call the prosecutor, um, you know, talking to him about the situation. And they call him the drug dog, which the irony of that is the money that my partner and I had seized is the only reason we had a drug dog. So it's like all these, these weapons that we helped build are now turned against us. And they found, they found the drugs and, uh, I had, I fessed up to it. I, I told them I kind of broke down and, I told my chief, I said, I used to be a really good police officer. I remember saying that, chief, I used to be a really good police officer. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, my whole world crumbled. So caught on a Tuesday and thought about killing myself on Wednesday and I thought no way out. So, and then had a incredible encounter with, uh, with Jesus Christ on day three. And, uh, they didn't make all my problems go away, but. For the first time in a long time, I didn't feel like I was in the dark anymore, and I felt like I needed to do the right thing. And and even it was it was crazy, like just a day or two of not being a cop anymore and realizing this is probably never going to be in my future again. That's all I've ever wanted to do. It was like the longer I was away from it, and the longer I was away from that fake shadow life that I built, the more I started to get the old me back. And, like within a week, I went from really feeling bad for myself for getting caught to really honestly feeling bad for doing the things I did. The big difference in that, you know, this, this self-pity compared to the realization that you are a really awful human being and did some really awful things to people. So, uh, I ended up in prison, uh, as I needed to be. And part of that process was I met up with the FBI and, and I wanted to make things right. So I went through all my drug crimes and uh, they just sat a stack of papers in front of me and we picked through them one by one. And they said, we need you to highlight the bad ones so that we can make these right. And I said, honestly, at this point, it would be easier to highlight the good ones because my my corruption ran pretty deep. So we just went through one by one. And one of those was Jamel McGee. And, uh, and I remember when I saw the report, I'm like, nope, that one was good. As I remembered it, that one was good. I, I caught a guy, he, he ordered up some more dope, and we got the dope. That was a good case. And uh, the FBI agent later uh, came back to me and said, hey, we need to like pick through that report a little bit better because uh, the, his family's pretty convinced that he's innocent. So 
we started picking back through it and the very the very opening line was you know on this day and time i pull up and i see this guy make a furtive gesture towards the center council and i was like you know what no that's that's bad that's not right that's completely wrong i lied um so i end up pleading guilty january 2009 to possession of crack with intent to deliver i was originally looking at 13 federal felonies mandatory minimum of 22 years you know, my family and I started praying. My church community started praying that, hey, we know that I need to be punished, but just that God would soften the heart of the judge and the prosecutor, um, that they wouldn't make an example out of me. Um, so I pled guilty January 2009. I got locked up that day. And then a week later, Jamel was released from prison. Uh, woke up one morning with seven years left on his sentence, not knowing that all this court, all these court proceedings were going on. And, uh, and he was a free man by the end of the day. Now for, I, I know there were others, but for his specifically is the reason he got out is because you just came clean and said, yes, I lied on this report. I mean, had you said, no, that's what happened. What do you, what is a sentence would have held up or were they going to dig any further? Yeah. yeah. As far as I can tell, I mean, the, you know, there's, there's cases that have circumstantial evidence and there's cases that have direct evidence. If we'd have taken that bag in and had it, you know, dusted for prints and sure enough, somebody's prints come back on it, that's direct evidence. There's a, there's a direct connection that you touched that bag. The only thing that got Jamel locked up was my testimony that I saw him lean towards an area where I found drugs. Uh, we painted a picture that, that, that gave the jury, I don't think, a, a whole lot of decision-making to make. So... Yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't think without my testimony uh, connecting him to that vehicle and to the driver's seat, even that he would have been found guilty. He was in the store when I showed up. That's a big. That's a big gap uh, to try to convince a jury that a guy inside of a store was was the quote unquote drug dealer. And then, so how? So you, you come clean. He's released. How, do you know how, how many cases were overturned once you started coming clean on these reports? It's been so long now. I want to say it was around 63, though. And for the majority of those, it's it's the story of the fruit of the poisonous tree. That the person was guilty. I caught them. But something as simple as I said that a cop... Uh, here's one of the things I do. I pull up to a street corner. There's 15 dudes standing together. I jump out really quick, and all of a sudden, one takes off running. Uh, and I would just run after them. I catch them. They've got drugs on them. Or... I walk back where we ran later and I see that they threw something. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't even go that far. I didn't lie on the report at all. They they ran for me. I caught them. They had dope in their pocket. They admit to me that they're selling drugs. Great case. Well, I would go back and I would say that a confidential informant gave me information that they were standing on that street corner. Well, why would I do that? Why would I say it was it was just aggressive police work? Well, if I said that a confidential informant gave me the information, then I could go back to my stash and pay that confidential informant X amount of dollars, even a hundred bucks. But what I was doing was I was signing, I was signing the receipt as if I was that confidential informant. And then I was putting the money in my own pocket. Gotcha. So because there was, because there was anything wrong with the report, the whole report gets thrown out. So the vast majority, if not all, but Jamel, I had somebody call me out on this before because in my memory, the only innocent person is Jamel. And this person said to me, yeah, but you haven't got to know all of us. <laughs> right. I said, okay. 
all right, fair enough. You know, I thought Jamel, you know, was completely guilty. So that's fair enough. You know, I, I'm, I'm operating off of my perspective. So, but the way, the way I've seen it is the vast majority of the people who, who I had arrested were guilty. They truly have done the thing that I accused them of doing, but I cheated to get to them. So all those cases were thrown out. An already poverty-stricken city was part of a class action lawsuit that, yeah, I don't know what the settlement was. I know it was uh, multi-millions of dollars. And uh, so I just continued to negatively affect a community that I had grown to love, even years beyond me being gone. Uh, I did a lot of damage to police work. I remember when I got home, I uh, I got a hold of one of the prosecutors that I did a lot of cases with, and I just wanted to apologize to her face-to-face. I said, I know that I made your job so hard, and I'm so sorry. I convinced myself that you knew what I was doing, and uh, and I think I convinced myself of that to, to justify and to feel better and to be able to sleep better at night. And she said, yeah, like you know, five, six months after you your story comes out on you know, in a voir dire process where we're trying to pick a jury for a drug case down in Niles, you know, 20 miles south of Ben Harbor where I worked. And, you know, one of the potential jurors raises their hand and says, I don't think I can be uh, part impartial. And I said, well, why can't you be impartial? And uh, he or she says, well, I worked, uh, I was on a jury that we found a guy guilty and it was a case where a police officer lied and it was one of my cases. And so now that, that comment tainted the entire jury pool to where they had to kind of shut everything down and bring a bunch of jurors back two weeks later and try all over again. So I, I gave a huge black eye to the police community. I remember at my sentencing, the federal prosecutor said, what this man, what this man has done has tore the fabric of our society. I remember as he said it, I was like, man, I've been as honest as I can be. I'm trying to right my wrongs. Like, that hurts, like, toward the fact, that feels like, you're going too far, buddy. And then he continued, and he said, what what distinguishes us from third world countries is, one of the things that distinguishes us is that we should be able to trust our police force. And what this man has done is tore at that trust. And I thought, you know what? You didn't go too far. You're absolutely right. Like, it wasn't just an individual choice or an individual um, decision. What I did affected an entire system and guys and, you know, men and women who still work in that profession. I, I made their job much harder, especially in this area. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And, and there's, it, it's very complex, and we talk about that a lot on on the show here when we're when we're looking at like wrongful conviction cases and and I always say yeah. one of the reasons why we push so hard and expose corruption within the police department or within a DA's office is not only because it oftentimes leads to an innocent person going to prison like Jamel but also a lot of times it ends up with guilty people getting let out because of corners were cut so that's right and and that's exact sounds like that's exactly what what you experienced uh where you know Jamel luckily got out but then a lot of guilty people got out as well and and then not even think about all the other effects that you know how it makes the policing job even even harder you know i, I was curious you, you you so you said that you know there you obviously got some advice for, from some other officers you didn't put any blame on them for what happened but you know what? What do you think? Because you know, I, I run into this uh, personally. I'm a, I'm the type of person that believes most cops are 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 good cops. I feel bad. You know, people don't realize that about me because I cover wrongful conviction cases. But you know, I have right. a lot of respect for police officers. And there's and it seems like there's a small percentage that cross the lines that you cross. What do you think? Pushes people into that, or what do you think? Pushes pulls whichever direction it is. That takes somebody who starts off with with the best intentions to get to that place. Yeah, I mean, I can only share from my context, from from my part of the world. But I mean, um, as you mentioned, we wrote a book about this, and part of part of my part of the book is to expose some of the some of the corruption that I experienced early on. And I mean, that was the sheriff's department uh, making jokes about. You know, on the way to a raid, hey, if anybody needs somebody to see something, so and so, you know, this officer has great eyes. And, you know, I talked to somebody afterwards, like, hey, what do they mean by that? And it's like, oh, we went to a, you know, we did a search warrant last week. It was at like 5.30 in the morning. We pull up and, you know, there's a guy sitting in a truck. And, you know, after the search warrant's done, the lieutenant or the sergeant finds crack cocaine outside of the truck window, the passenger side truck window. So he wrote the report and said that he saw him throw it out the window. Well, it was pitch blackout. How in the world did that happen? Mm-hmm. So they were making a joke. Like, so the whole, the whole van is in on the joke that this guy lied about it the week before. I had a DEA agent, you know, the, the top of drug enforcement and administrate like that. This, that's the pinnacle. That's what I was trying to make it to is the DEA and, you know, he would come through town every once in a while. We would do jobs together and we did a knock and talk, which is just, we had no reason to be able to get a search warrant. We didn't have enough evidence, but we knock on the door and you try to talk your way in. Uh, and we did, uh, I knocked on the door, girl answered the door. I said, Hey, I heard there's some guns here. Uh, I said, can we just come in and make sure there's no guns? So she lets us into the house and me and my partner walked to the back bedrooms and we found a couple guys hide a couple warrants that they had. As we are handcuffing them and bring them back into the living room, there's seven and a half ounces of crack cocaine sitting on the on the computer desk right where we came in the door. Like you walk in the door and it's right to the left, mm-hmm. and just sitting there in plain sight. Like glory, glory, hallelujah! Like what a what a great time to show up. Well, you know the DEA agent pulled me aside and said, "Hey, uh, just so you know, when we came in, that stuff was all covered up." 
I uncovered it while you guys were in the back and I found all that crack and I didn't have time to cover it back up before you guys came back out. So I'm going to need you to write the report as if it was in plain sight, which is one of the exceptions to the search warrant rule. Mm -hmm. So he said, are you comfortable with that? I said, absolutely. So we sat together and kind of Monday morning quarterbacked how I would write the report. And then he wrote his affidavit for the indictment, basically, uh, you know, copy and paste off of mine. We wrote one copy together and then used the his report and the kid ended up being indicted. You know, so, you know, saw state police do shady things, heard cops tell stories about how, you know, when they would work in Benton Harbor, uh, you know, one of the officers would go to the back door, one would go to the front door, and the guy on the front door would pound on the door, and the one in the back would yell, come in. So you got one officer yelling, come on in, and then the officer would write in the report. I knocked on the door, and someone said, come in. So I walked in. Um, just, you know, just, these are all system issues. Now, are those, are those individuals? Um, you said that most officers are good. I believe that too. I truly believe that the most officers, I think definitely most officers get into it with very good intentions. And I think the system allows, um, people to do things for officers to do things that, um, yeah, it's so tough because it's, you're fighting an entire system. So you take a 21 year old wide eyed person, you put them into the situation. And they're going to pick up habits from other people. They're going to pick up habits from those out ahead of them. So I, I truly believe that police work doesn't change unless it changes from the older the older population, the older officers saying to younger people, hey, we, we don't do that stuff anymore. That's not what we're about. Yeah, that was the next question I was going to ask you is how, because I, I believe it is, it, it is systematic. You know, I have a friend of mine is a, was a former Baltimore cop. And, yeah. and it's, you know, so, so Benton Harbor, the, you know, the, it's a big city for our little corner of Michigan, but it's it's a small town compared to Baltimore. Yeah. But it's the same issues. He's told me this. I mean, it could be the same stories you're telling me. And for him, you know, it, Baltimore was a huge police force and it was in you were incentivized to close cases, to seize drugs, to all do in order to move up the ladder. And it just created this this culture to where. It was it was cool to bend the rules because that's what you had to do to to win. Did you did you have that same kind of feeling in even in smaller Benton Harbor? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, it was it was all about my ego. It's it, every time I would get a big bust, it would stroke my ego. You know, everybody was oohing and on. Like we've created the war on drugs, really created this opportunity for. Ah, when I think about it, I think about like the wide receivers of a football team. When generally you talk to a quarterback and, and generally they try to at least appear to be humble. You talk to a wide receiver and they are their biggest promoter. And that's what it felt like was like the guys who worked narcotic were these boisterous, look at me, look at what I did this time. Like from every department that I dealt with, uh, it just felt like it was a different breed of police officer. It was, it was very, uh, very masculine, even when there was women, you know, who worked in narcotics, it was, it was a very masculine, you know, beat your chest, marking each other's territory. Like that's just, it's a system. So it's hard to explain. You just felt it when you were in it. But then I even look at like, you know, I, I catch these guys, they're, they're standing by a, uh, light 
uh, box, like an electrical box outside of a, a known crack area. I pull up, they walk away. I walk up to the box, or one of my, my partners does, opens the box up, and there's a big sack of, of crack cocaine, individually wrapped. Well, we go grab them. They've got, you know, small denominations, large amount of money, small denominations. Everything's crying drug dealer. And they were standing on each side of this electrical box. Like, come on. The evidence says this. They're dope, right? So I arrest both of them. Uh, you know, the prosecutor calls me in and says, hey, did you... Did you see them make a furtive gesture towards that box? No, I never saw that. No, neither of them touched it. You don't, neither, did either of them even look at it? I said, no, I, I honestly can't say that that happened. And uh, she said, I don't think we're going to be able to prosecute this case. Like, I'll try to get them to plead out, but I don't think we're going to be able to get anything from this. Uh, because it is such a known drug area. Like, they could have just been standing outside chilling. You've got nothing connecting them to that electrical box. So I took that as next time I need to say I, I saw them touch the electrical box. Easy enough, you know. Uh, now, did she tell me to lie? No. Did she intend for me to walk away believing I needed to lie next time? I don't know. But I thought that's what she was saying. I thought that was the message I was receiving. And this is the same prosecutor that I would call and say, hey, I have a search warrant. And she would say, is it like a run-of-the-mill search warrant? Which just means, is it going to be like, hey, this is what the house looks like, very clear description of the home, and make sure you don't get the wrong house, and it's a controlled buy. You know, you met them, blah, 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 the system we ran through earlier. Is it is it really cut and dry, or is there some weird things to it? Nope, it's a cut and dry one. Okay, whatever, you know, uh, sign my name on it. Didn't even read the search warrant. Now, her signature says, I read the search warrant, and I believe there's probable cause for them to get a for them to get the search warrant. And then the judge or the magistrate looks at that and says, well, we've got these checks and balances that already went through the prosecutor. So one person has signed off on it. Now that I read it, I see that there's enough there too. So both checks and balances are done. Go ahead, take it, go beat the door down. You know, like, I don't know how many times I called, you know, this this person, you know, we didn't, we never faxed it to her. She never saw it, you know, but, you know, uh, that's a system issue. Right? Like, that's... Mm -hmm. The system is breaking down, you know, and in the same aspect that, you know, one time I I lost sight of one of the confidential informants. She was kind of just a a really sneaky person. She went around the corner in an alley, and I lost sight of her. And So I was lamenting to one of the narcotics detectives for the sheriff's department. I said, what do I do with that, right? Like, I did not, I cannot honestly say I saw her. And if, at that time at least, if you didn't keep contact with them all the time, the judge would not give you the search warrant. Because if they're trying to set somebody up, they, you know, they dip around the corner, you lose eye contact with them, they grab a bag of dope that uh, they hid on the way to the house. So that's why it's so important that the officer sees them the whole time. So I was lamenting, and the officer's like, just write it. Just say that you saw it the whole time. I was like, all right, that's all I need. Like, again, I didn't have to then follow through with it, but here's this older officer. And, you know, I've told all these things to the FBI. I've had these conversations. They said, if you tell us the truth about 10 things and lie about one thing, or, you know, tell the truth about nine things, lie about one thing, you might as well lie about all 10. So, okay, well, this is going to get awkward because you know a lot of these guys. Mm-hmm. You know, so I tell the truth about all 10 things. Yeah, me and my partner are the only ones who go to prison. You know? Just saw one of the officers last week, you know, doing a public relations event. 
you know, great for him. Maybe he's changed his ways. You know, he's moved up in the department. You know, good for him. But, you know, what are we doing here? Either either you wanted to root out the corruption or you didn't. Uh, and that's what I learned is you didn't. You wanted to do enough to make the community quiet down. You wanted to do enough to make it look like you've, you've done everything that you could do to root out the bad two officers. And then... I mean, just look at look at the Benton Harbor Police Department for a minute. I ended up getting caught, and I needed to be caught, and I needed to go down, and it was a, it was absolutely everything that needed to happen. I was I was out of control, and I wasn't going to stop. My partner, a year and a half later, gets caught. He finally comes to the table and says, "You know what? I've been untruthful. I was doing the same thing Collins was doing." Then, uh, officer gets caught stealing cars from the same department, from Benton Harbor Police Department. Uh, he and somebody who towed vehicles worked together to tow vehicles out of people's yards uh, and then sell them. You had another officer that got caught extorting a woman for sex uh, because he caught her with some, some uh, drugs and said, I'll trade you the charge of these drugs for sexual favors. Same department. These are all from the same department. And he ends up, the day that he's doing court, ends up killing himself because he couldn't answer to his charges. Like, this is the same department. This is, there's clearly a system issue. And it's not a big department. I mean, how many, when you were on, how many people, how many cops were there in Benton Harbor Police Department? When I was hired, I was the 12th of the 13th. And then with some federal grant money and some school resource officers, I think we got close to 30 at one point, but. The city itself is four square miles, 10,000 people. So not a big city. Right. But, but, but it's amazing. Travel to, um, Little Rock, Arkansas. Travel to Baltimore. Uh, go to parts of Iowa and you'll hear the same exact story. So it blew my mind when we started traveling to these spaces because it'll be a road that separates the haves from the have nots and it'll be all white over here and all black over here. Uh, or it's a railroad track. In Little Rock, Arkansas, it's a railroad track. In Iowa, it's a road named Locust Street. In Benton Harbor, it's a bridge that separates the haves from the have-nots. And so you see this all over the country and say, okay, like, what is the system in play that allows these things to happen? How did we get here? So that's a lot of, like, my hope for my story is just to shine some light on like the inside piece of police work, but also like, how do we change things? Like, you know, I went through three years of the Academy and I never once had any education about, um, just the relationship between black citizens and white police officers. I was blown away that people hated me when I started working in Ben. I've never done anything to anybody in Ben Harbor, but it wasn't me. It was what I stood for. I was, uh, I was a white man who had no, no interactions with people outside of my own culture that lived across the bridge in the safe neighborhood. And then would drive into Benton Harbor every day to police a community that I didn't understand. I never knew that that was an issue. Uh, I don't know that it would have changed much because I was still a pretty arrogant young man, but never once, you know, was it an educational piece? Um, and I think about, I was at the gym few years back and, and our our sheriff the the lead law enforcement officer uh who in every conversation i had seems like a very nice man 
Yeah, he's wearing this shirt while he's working out that has two German shepherds on it. It says, uh, fur missiles, you know, taking care of idiots from the dawn of police work or something like that. And at first glance, I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. And then I thought about it more and I'm like, well, hold on. Like, that's dehumanizing speech. Like, to, to use a dog on a person, like, uh, you took, you took their humanity away. They're just an idiot. They, they must have been an idiot for running. Like, well, maybe they're scared of dogs. Maybe they were really scared that they knew their friends were up to no good, and then police showed up, so they just wanted to remove themselves from the situation before they know it, they're getting chewed up by a dog, but they're an idiot. So, like, little things like that. Like, we shouldn't be able to call people idiots anymore. We shouldn't, um, I don't know, is there cussing on your show or no? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, shit bags. Like, that was, that was the common, like, oh, got another shit bag off the street. Like, there needs to be an older officer that says, hey, oh, guys, guys, guys. Ah, uh, not on my shift. I'm the sergeant of the shift. We don't talk about people like that. That is a human being. And anytime you start to talk about somebody less than, uh, than what they really are, it's really easy to oppress a person that you don't believe is fully human. And that stuff needs to stop. There's got to be an end to that immediately. And, but I don't know how you do it. You know, like, unless the police police the police, uh, it's not going to happen. Well, I, I think that what you're doing, you know, the, the question I was going to ask is how do we fix it? But that's the question we're all asking, right? How do we fix a massive systematic problem? But I think that what you've done by writing your book and speaking on it, and, and, and you know, that's what I try to do with the podcast and so many other people that, that have any kind of form of media where they're exposing this stuff now. I like to hope that that's part of the solution, that if we start shining a spotlight on it, on the problem that maybe people will think twice about doing the things they're doing if they know people are watching and talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe so. And I think that we've seen that. I think the, the fact that everybody has an incredibly good, uh, video recorder in their pocket. Mm -hmm. Like I, I wouldn't have been able to get away with the half, half the stuff that I got away with because people would have been pulling out their phones and I wouldn't have been able to get away with it. I would have known I was being watched. And that makes a police officer's job really hard right now, and I get that. But it has also brought a, a sense of accountability that just couldn't be there because the police weren't going to police the police. Right. And, and you know, it, it may make the job harder, but it's kind of, it's like when my, you know, when my kids get grounded and they, you know, later on, you know, they, they you know, they're, they're remorseful for what they've done. They've learned their lesson, but they're still grounded. And it's like, well, you don't you don't get to have all these privileges now because you took advantage of them. And I feel like that's how that's right. the police force is like, I'm sorry. It's, it's harder. I want cops to, you know, to be able to do their job, but I want them to be able to do it right. And, and you've, when you, when you take and you violate the, tr the trust of the people you're serving, it takes a long time to earn that back. So it's, you're just going to have to deal with it now. And, and I, right. I really admire you telling your story and everything. I mean, that that's a hard story to tell, man, to come out and, and, and tell, especially, you know, an audience like this to come out and say, here, here's all the corrupt things that I did. But I'd be remiss if I, if I let you go before you kind of tell the ending of the story of how you and, and Jamel uh, end up reconnecting after you wrongfully put him in prison and then help to get him back out. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So where we left off uh, today on that story is Jamel got out and I went in, um, kind of changed spots there. And I don't want to give away the whole story because there'd be no reason to buy the book, but, uh, through some crazy, incredible set of circumstances that only God could set up, uh, we end up back in each other's lives. 
And uh, it was about four and a half years, five years maybe, after after our initial encounter, uh, we ended up running into each other again. And that encounter did not go the way I wanted. You know, I've, I've, I, I'd gone back to the city of Benton Harbor to make amends to people. And I ran into Jamel, and I knew who he was, and I knew what I had done. And I tried to apologize to him, and he, he told me to stick it where the sun don't shine and, and left me that day. And I thought, okay, well, you know, that was a failed attempt. I tried, I tried to seek reconciliation. And then a few years later, we ended up running back into each other through an outreach program, uh, through a, a job placement group that I was a part of. And uh, Jamel was just on a really bad time, uh, was living out of his brother's car. And see, there, there's all these consequences, right? Like Jamel was released seven years early. Hooray! Let let's be happy about that. He did not receive an apology from the government. He didn't receive like, hey, here's a stipend to get yourself back on your feet. Like whatever he had in his account that day, he was released with that and a bus ticket to get back to Benton Harbor. Uh, when I got out, you know, I had my mom, you know, gave me a 2003 Pontiac Bonneville. It was rusted out through and through, but it got me from point A to point B. I had a support group. When I got home, I had a friend who hooked me up with a job, making minimum wage at a, a farm. Like it wasn't the dream job, but I had a community around me. When Jamel got out, he went back to a community that handed him a bag of drugs and said, Hey bro, get back on your feet. And he said, I just did three years for this. What are you talking about? I'm not, this is not how I'm getting back on my feet. So I ended up running back into him while he's living out of his brother's car and just trying to do right in life. And God just did some incredible, amazing things. Uh, allowed us to start working together, uh, allowed us, uh, to start ministering together in the Benton Harbor community. Uh, the, our local newspaper, uh, a writer for, for the Herald Palladium got a hold of our story and, and did a piece in the Herald Palladium. And, and then the Associated Press picked it up. And, you know, this is 2015. And then early 2016, CBS, uh, on the road with Steve Hartman, you know, their producers call and say, hey, we want to do this story about you guys. And they released the story on a Friday. We had our first official speaking engagement uh, the Wednesday before the, the story was released. We went down to South Bend, Indiana and spoke at a, a fundraiser. And uh, Steve Hartman told me, he said, get a picture, even if it's just with your iPhone, get a picture and give it to me because this is going to change your life. So we get him the picture of me and him speaking together. And uh, Friday night on CBS Evening News, you know, they do the story about us um, coming back together and being friends now. And the very end of it, he says, and now the two travel together and speak about reconciliation. And then they played it again Sunday morning um, on the Sunday morning uh, CBS News, and and that just completely changed our lives. We we were able to travel the world and talk about reconciliation and really try to help people work through their problems with reconciliation. We we've gotten to speak at police departments and police academies and. Um, just all different platforms that we've been able to share our story and try to raise raise awareness about the issues in policing and just people and their personal um, reconciliation stories. So uh, it's been a ride. We got to write a book together. The book's called Convicted. I got it right here. It's con- Convicted, a Crooked Cop, an Innocent Man, and an Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. There it is right there. And that can, I mean, you can find that at Amazon. It's, it's still, it's still selling strong, which is beautiful. So yeah, we just want as many people that are willing to, to experience uh, just the amazing things that God did through our story. And still with the understanding that, 
you know what? You may read the story and still be pretty pissed off. I got right. 18 months in prison. Jamel got 10 years in prison. We had the same exact charge. We were in the same exact courtroom and the same exact judge. My man gets 10 years. I get 18 months. Like there's, there's still a lot of story to be told. For sure. That's a whole, that's a whole nother can of worms that, uh, yeah. needs, needs to be addressed. This is a three hour show, right? That's what we're right. doing. <laughs> right. Uh, but man, I'll be happy to have you back again and tell that story, uh, another time or see if we can, we can solve that problem. The two of us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's change the world, Bob. That's right. Uh, all right, Andrew, man, I really, really appreciate your time, brother. And I appreciate what you do. Again, that book is called Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and an Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. Uh, you can, I just picked up a copy on Amazon. Uh, you can get it there. I'm sure you can get it probably anywhere you get books, right? Yeah. I, I have some in my trunk, too, if you run into me. I got a <laughs> signed copy. Have you guys done an audio version of it, or is it just the, the book? Uh, there is an audio version out there. It's not through like Kindle or anything. It was uh, the publisher, um, Penguin Random House, did an audio version. So it can be found. All righty. And with that, Andrew, I will let you go, man. And again, I appreciate your time and appreciate what you're doing. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate you having me. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. 
Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.